We know that um, there's a lot of systematic um, bias in medicine and the way that we apply medicine. And I think the, the outcomes for our patients are inextricably linked to the way we've organised our workforce, where we know females are underrepresented in leadership worlds and across a wide range of, 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 of metrics you can use to evaluate a workforce or recognition in a workforce. And I think when that occurs, inevitably, there's some bias in, in how we practice. ISN would like to acknowledge Trevier for their support of this special WCN 21 series of the ISN Global Kidney Care podcast. Good day, everybody. This is uh, Dr. Arvind Kanjivaram, better known as Arvind Kanchi on Twitter. I am a nephrologist based in Bangalore and also the chair of the ISN Education social media team. I am the guest host of this uh, Global Kidney Care podcast brought to you by the International Society of Nephrology. This is the special WCN series of podcasts where we interview speakers of the World Congress of Nephrology. I must tell you that the World Congress of Nephrology has gotten off to a great start with the the Raising the Curtain sessions. These are free to view sessions that have already uh, been uh, broadcast over the past couple of days and people have been viewing it. It's uh, excellent. I have with me two uh, uh, leading ladies in uh, nephrology, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Angela Webster. She's a clinical epidemiologist, nephrologist, and transplant physician. She studied clinical epidemiology at the University of Sydney and did her PhD in 2006. She now splits her time working as professor in clinical epidemiology in the Sydney School of Public Health, director of evidence integration at the NHMRC Clinical Trial Center, and as a senior staff specialist in the renal medicine and transplantation unit at Westmead Hospital in Sydney. Good day to you. Angela, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for the opportunity to join you, Arvind, and um, discuss this important topic. It's been a very exciting theme in the this year's Congress, and I'm um, it's even great, it's even better to have this opportunity to talk about it offline and uh, outside of the formal talk setting. Excellent, thank you. I also have with me Dr. Sophia Ahmed. Uh, she's a professor in the Department of Medicine at the Cummings School of uh, Medicine at the University of Calgary in Canada. Dr. Ahmed is one of Canada's leading experts in sex and gender research across people with kidney diseases. She's worked in an advisory capacity for the CanSol CKD research products and ensure that the network increases its capacity for, to incorporate sex and gender analysis. Welcome, Dr. Sophia Ahmed. We've already met before. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. So thank you very much for the invitation to speak again. You're talking about sex and gender in nephrology, proper care or propaganda. Uh, we've already talked a bit about this. Uh, so I am going to sort of change the tack here and look at uh, hormones. Is estrogen protective to the kidney? So that is a great question, Arvind, and I do not have a straightforward answer to for you. So um, we have in animal studies, we see that estrogen does appear to be protective. Um, and conversely, perhaps testosterone is deleterious to kidney function. So when we look at sex differences in kidney function, it's hard to know what impact hormones do, because like I said, some 
studies, animal studies suggest that estradiol is protective and testosterone is harmful. However, when we move to the human population, it's even less straightforward. Um, we actually, uh, there's one study that suggests that uh, female sex in at least non-diabetes uh, kidney disease is protective um, from uh, compared to male sex. Um, that's an old, a relatively old systematic review. Um, but then there's a more recent or a few years later in 2003, a systematic review uh, that uh, meta-analysis of RCTs uh, that used ACE inhibitors, non-diabetic diabetic kidney disease once again, that suggested that actually female sex was harmful, or I should say not necessarily harmful, but um, uh, not protective that male sex was. And when we actually look at the two populations in these uh, conflicting studies, as I said, the first one was mainly women of premenopausal age. And the second study, it was mainly women of postmenopausal age. So that suggests that uh, being menopausal is associated with faster loss of kidney function. But then there's an even more recent study from 2013. It's over 2 million patients. It's a consortia uh, that did not show any change in kidney function uh, with the onset of menopause or using age as a surrogate. So it's really unclear what role at least endogenous estrogen plays in terms of protection or, or loss of kidney function. But then it's also important to recognize there's exogenous estrogen that uh, females um, can be exposed to, as well as transgender women. And we really don't have a great handle on the uh, effect of exogenous estrogen. So what am I talking about with that? So hormonal contraception, uh, we know in the cardiovascular literature that the oral contraceptive is associated with uh, increase, slightly increased of myocardial infarction. And all, actually, everybody who takes the oral contraceptive, there's about a three to four bump uh, increase in their systolic blood pressure. Uh, and we've previously shown that this is also a associated with an increase uh, in renin angiotensin system activity, we and others. Whether this is true, though, for non-oral forms of hormone therapy is not clear. Um, oral forms of estrogen have to go uh, through first-pass metabolism in the liver, and so that uh, results in upregulation of prothrombotic um, factors, as well as potentially the renin-angiotensin system, whereas non-oral forms of estrogen don't have to go through this first-pass metabolism. Um, in terms of the postmenopausal hormone therapy, it's the same uh, concern. We know from a, uh, when we look at the Women's Health Initiative, again, I take a lot of data from the cardiovascular literature. The Women's Health Initiative, the large 2002 JAMA paper that randomized uh, 160,000 women, uh, sorry, not that many, but several thousand women uh, to either oral estrogen, plus or minus a progestin, medroxyprogesterone versus placebo and found that those uh, randomized to hormone therapy, there was an increased cardiovascular risk. So, you know, that really, you would think from a kidney perspective, well, that's probably a problem as well. We should stop all hormone therapy. 
But it's important to recognize there's lots of stopping hormone therapy. When we talk about hormones, it's like saying this is what antibiotics do to your uh, kidneys or to your heart. There's so many nuances. So if you take your estrogen, I'm talking about people with uh, female physiology. If you take it orally, there's first pass metabolism. You take it non-orally, that probably makes a difference as well. When you take the estrogen with respect to timing of menopause, um, so in a reanalysis of the Women's Health Initiative, those women who took hormone therapy within 10 years of their, their last period actually had an improvement in cardiovascular outcomes. Whereas women who took it more than 20 years after menopause, um, those were the women who, who had poor cardiovascular outcomes. Um, Many women, if they have a uterus, or I should say females, they don't, uh, they take a progestin as well so that they don't have unopposed estrogen. And progestins, there's literally dozens of different types, and they all have different uh, effects on, uh, on physiology as well, some uh, more harmful than others. Um, and so, and lastly, the type of estrogen, um, all estrogens are not the same. There's estradiol, there's estrone. Uh, there's conjugated equine estrogen. And again, all of those have different effects on the body. So Arvind is a, a very uh, succinct, not succinct answer. The short answer is we don't know what the effects of, of hormones as yet are on kidney function. And I, we haven't even started talking about gender affirming hormone therapy in the transgender population. So lots of uh, areas for research. Oh, I just thought this is um, Angela here. I just thought this this is one of my favorite hobby horses. And I feel that we've done a bad job in nephrology advocating for inclusion of our patients in, in large scale trials across other other disease areas. Uh, we know that nephrology uh, patients, CKD patients are often excluded from a lot of randomized trials and other things, or when they are included, we don't have the core outcome measures we'd need to measure nephrological outcomes such as creatinine or GFR measured across time. Often all kinds of other biochemical measures are taken in trials, but not, not the ones that we want to know, like proteinuria and urinalysis and, and creatinine. And so when we actually, what we want to understand epidemiologically is, is the impact of, of, of gender and sex hormones across the lifespan, across the life course. And yet we often see these snapshots um, of populations who are analyzed or included in, in studies because it's easier statistically or methodologically to look at just dialysis patients or just CKD patients or just other patients or postmenopausal patients or premenopausal patients. But none of this is getting at the nub of the issue, which is understanding how CKD across a lifespan uh, can be moderated or not by female hormones or male hormones. And I think that's the we should be looking to what the real nub of the issue is and designing and advocating for studies that really answer the questions we want answered. I think that's that, that's my my tuppence worth on, on everything you've said, Sophie, and you're so much more knowledgeable about the detail of this than me. But my epidemiological big principle uh, comes in here to say, you know, we need to be better advocates for how we study our patients and how we get them included across across studies in other disease areas too. Absolutely. I agree with a thousand percent with what Angela just said. Um, and, you know, it's funny as nephrologists, we all, we actually did a survey, an international survey of nephrologists and kidney allied health professionals and asked them, uh, and again, I'm focusing on, on the female patients, but did they think that sex hormone, the kidney, uh, sex hormone status was important in terms of kidney function? 
And 95% of, of kidney healthcare professionals said, yes, it is. And then when we asked how often they actually speak to their patients, uh, our patients, I should say, uh, about these issues, um, it was much slower. Um, and actually, our transplant colleagues were much better at it than general nephrologists, uh, probably because transplant brings back for many people fertility, et cetera. So yeah. The way I interpreted that study is that, you know, we all think it's important and we should, we feel that there is some relationship between kidney disease and hormone status. And exactly as Angela said, because we don't have the research, we don't actually know what to do about it. And so we don't, there's nothing to talk about because, because we don't have that research. So, um, so just to emphasize that this is an important thing uh, that occurs in, all people, females and males across the lifespan. And, and we need to appreciate how this, uh, what the relationship is. I think maybe some some gain could come between, I mean, we organize our health services into silos, especially as we concentrate on kidneys, somebody else concentrates on hormones, somebody else concentrates on cardiovascular disease. And I think kind of a closer cross-disciplinary collaboration on this is probably warranted. Um, of course, female hormones and male hormones are dealt with by separate specialties as well. Like we have obstetric gynecology fertility specialists and we have endocrinologists and we have urologists. And so somewhere in the middle, answering our question needs a real cross-disciplinary collaboration. And I think probably the time is ripe for, for exploring that. Now that we have access to larger data and, and electronic health records, we may be able to, to create or at least do the basic work before we even start new trials or new studies. Right. Angela, you're talking on, is gender still an issue uh, for nephrology at the World Congress of Nephrology? In a, uh, I'd just like to ask you, uh, being an epidemiologist that you are, uh, how have you looked at studies that probably show that uh, in males, the disease of CKD sort of worsens faster than in women? Women tend probably not to do very well on dialysis when compared to men. Uh, these statements have been made and uh, they are popular statements. What is your opinion on these statements? I mean, a lot of it comes back to what I've just talked about, about how we have imperfect information because our focus has not been on looking at this over a life course and, and then the time is right for doing so. I think that we know a few things. We know that, you know, some studies have, have we seem that CKD is more common in women than men, but may accelerate faster deterioration may accelerate faster in men than women. But we also need to look at the data sources we use for that. We use a lot of um, end-stage kidney disease registries, dialysis registries, transplant registries to infer this data. And we have very poor records generally for people with CKD who are not to be treated with dialysis, who opt for a conservative care pathway or palliation. And we do know that women take up that option far more than men. And so it may just be a skew and a bias in the data that we have that we look at because we just have an underrepresentation of the women that should be captured in an end-stage kidney disease register, but we have the proxy of using dialysis registers for that. So we miss all those women that opt for conservative care. So I think there are some questions around that. We also know that when you look at things like survival with end-stage kidney disease and, and mortality uh, on dialysis, which is often, uh, or after transplant, which is often predominantly from cardiovascular causes, we know that um, 
certainly some work we've done in Australia and New Zealand that suggests that more women than men opt for dialysis withdrawal. And so the way that their deaths occur or the way that their deaths is attributed in death certification may be different from men. And so there may be some skewing there over um, attribution of causes of death and attribution of things because more women are opting out of dialysis and choosing a, um, a palliative care that way. Um, and so I think there's a lot of imperfections in the data sources we've done and a lot of it comes from us not actually interrogating data designed to study the research question we're interested in. We're using it in kind of secondary ways. And I think this, um, I'm not so convinced that it's so clear cut as we think in the, re, in the, in the, in the received literature, the published literature, because I think we haven't answered the right questions in the right way. I'm going to ask you about uh, kidney transplant. You both actually about uh, a question about uh, kidney transplantation. Now in India and probably most Asian countries with the patriarchal society, uh, we find that women are donors, live donors. And if you look at the cadaveric transplants, you find that the recipients are always or mostly males and lesser women get the cadaveric kidney. Uh, Probably not so in the West, but I remember reading up uh, literature in Spain, which says that 66% of the kidneys go to men there as well. What, what's the what's the play here? What's happening here? I mean, I can I can start off with some big picture stuff that we know that um, there's a lot of systematic um, bias in medicine and the way that we apply medicine. And I think the the outcomes for our patients are inextricably linked to the way we've organised our workforce, where we know females are underrepresented in leadership worlds and across a wide range of, 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 of metrics you can use to evaluate a workforce or recognition in a workforce. And I think when that occurs, inevitably, there's some bias in, in how we practice as well. Um, we do know that women face more hurdles to get on waiting lists for transplant than men. And when on waiting lists, um, certainly some new work we've been doing in Australia and New Zealand, we've shown that when on waiting lists, women have more excursions off the waiting list temporarily or permanently than men do. Uh, and when they're off the waiting list, they're off the waiting list for longer than their male counterparts, which can't be explained by other by disease or other confounding things. And so I think women have a harder time getting transplanted. And remember that some of these things are intersectional. It's not just, it's not just gender. It's, there's also other barriers across other um, disadvantaged groups. And when you when you add these things together, they're not additive; they're multiplicative. So, for instance, a woman of colour um, will have much more trouble than a white woman. Uh, and when you when you amplify that to so include social disadvantage or or remote living, then um, the disadvantaged people become very much more disadvantaged. And that unfortunately, women do bear the brunt of that. So. So while we do see more female living donors and more male uh, cadaveric and living donor recipients than females, I don't think it's as clear cut as um, using an immunological excuse like, oh, women are more sensitized because they've had pregnancies. I think that's actually a fallacy. I think it's more likely that the systemic biases in the way we practice medicine, and I think it's it's still true for the for the developed world. It's not just um, uh, um it's not just a problem of other countries. Um, I think that's likely to be more of a problem we need to tackle, even though it's more uncomfortable for us to tackle. I think we do have to look at that first. Right. Sophia, would you like to add to this any details from Canada and USA that you have on the, on the uh, gender difference in transplantation? 
So I certainly defer to Angela as the transplant nephrologist in the room. Um, and yes, I agree. I think that there are underlying uh, biases that exist around the world and in our society dependent, and but, uh, you know, are not absent in any particular setting. And um, I think it's also important to incorporate, uh, as you said, to take into account sex-based differences and perhaps gendered-based differences. And Angela, um, please correct me if I'm wrong. So there is a tendency for the person in the house who makes less money than the primary breadwinner um, to be the one who donates uh, because it has less of an effect on the household, for example. So, um, and, and that's not an unreasonable reason for one, I'll say parent in a, in a two parent household to donate compared to the other person. I can, there are some steps that, so for example, the Kidney Foundation of Canada um, is looking for ways to reimburse people, uh, donors, for lost work, lost wages due to work, uh, because that's a huge barrier in terms of donation. I mean, you don't work, you don't get paid, your family doesn't eat. Um, so I think it would be important to understand why, uh, independent of biases, what are reasons that are perpetuating these differences, and what are things that we can, interventions that we can do to in the end, make donation easier for people to do. Um, and so use that example of, of reimbursing for lost wages as an example. This might in um, uh, might support more people to come forward with donation uh, who would be perhaps the primary bread earner, bread earner in the family. Um, in Australia and New Zealand, we've had a, a system of um, reimbursement at the basic wage level for any kidney donor for some time. And it's it used to be fixed at 10 weeks of um, of the minimum wage, which would be rooted to the employer. So the employer could keep paying the, the donor and the employer would be reimbursed by the government. But it's recently been tweaked. So now they do it as a number for to accommodate part-time work and not disadvantage part-time workers. They've now, um, it's something... I think it's 342 hours worth of wages, which depending on how much you work can ex extend beyond the 10 week period. Um, and that's made a lot of difference to the, that's that's made more marginalized or disadvantaged communities better able to afford to have a living donor in the family without losing um, the, the basic you know, living wage to the household. So that's made a lot of difference here and has changed things, particularly for um, some of our more disadvantaged um, uh, uh, people who are who have potential donors in their family, but who haven't been able to understand how they could manage to donate until now. And I think just want to highlight, you mentioned that that's a government um, program, which I think is truly what it has to be, um, rather than based on a foundation that's raising money through as a charitable foundation. It, it really needs to be implemented as part of just, this is how we run donation programs. Yeah. It's so administered I, and yeah, here yeah. it's administered and, and used in a very similar way to paid maternity leave or paid parental leave. So, which is, it has the same mechanisms where the money is reimbursed to the employer of the person who is taking the leave. And then the emphasis, the government hopes that the employer will continue usual wages, even if it may, there may be a small deficit, mm -hmm. um, but at least the very minimum wage goes to the, the person. So it's a kind of, it, it, it's in general, 
bundled into kind of social support for understandable leave like like becoming a parent or or donating a kidney or having you know a bereavement leave for a close family member dying or uh, carers leave so um i think that kind of social integrated support is is crucial in in normalizing the um um the, the situation of people who want to donate kidneys and i think the living donor program is you know incredibly important it's also extended now here to our paired kidney exchange where we have donors who aren't donating directly to their loved one but through a, a paired kidney exchange so anybody who donates into the paired kidney exchange including altruistic donors can access that support for donation and i think that's been that's been an incredible um social uh justice uh, intervention by the government to recognize that 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 kind of support pays dividends. Excellent. Thank you. Some great points brought out there in that discussion on gender and nephrology. I should thank Angela and Sophia for joining me on this Global Kidney Care podcast, the special WCN series. I request all of you listening to this podcast to register for the conference, the World Congress of Nephrology at theisn.org and come and listen to these speakers speak about nephrology, enrich your knowledge here and carry on from there. Thank you and goodbye. ISN would like to acknowledge Trevere for their support of this special WCN 21 series of the ISN Global Kidney Care Podcast.